our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he really wants to play the saga Herald Unites the Elves. It's Matt Morgan. I've been thinking I need a career change here soon. And I was thinking I would love to get paid to sleep. That would really just be a, a dream job. Dude. <laughs> no, Oh my god, you are a treasure, Matt. I love your dad joke. I'm, I'm glad you shouldn't be sleeping on my dad joke skills. Oh, okay, you only get one. You only get one. <laughs> oh man. Oh, I love it. Next, he doesn't want to play the saga Harold Unites the Elves. He wants to play the saga Ernest Goes to Camp. That's Dana Roach. Um, I mentioned last week that it was my birthday, so I thought I would check and see if February 5th also was like an internationally important day. Um, and I found out it is actually National Chocolate Fondue Day. It is World Nutella Day, both of which sound delicious. And it is Monarch Day, which I assume means we all get to draw a card at the end of the day. I'm super into that. Absolutely. Bring on the Monarch Day. Wait, can we all be the Monarch at the same time? I don't while, think so. While eating chocolate fondue and Nutella. That just I feel sounds like, like a, a royal treat. Oh, no, no, Matt. I feel like we got to have a scrap. There can only be one monarch, and I'll make sure it's me. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck-building resource on the web for the Commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Hey, Dana, what is it that we're talking about this week? We're talking about the data of power creep. Indeed. Guys, I'm really, really excited for this one. This is an episode that I've wanted us to do for a while now, but I, I finally feel like we're actually in a good position to do it, especially now that we are past the year 2020 and we can kind of reevaluate it a little bit from a distance because what we want to do on this episode is take a look at, on average, how many cards from each year show up in the average deck list for any given commander. You know, on average, how many cards show up in deck lists from the year 2008 or the year 1996? or the years 2019 and 2020. There's kind of a vibe in the air about how power creep is a thing. And this episode is when we're actually going to take a look at some data to really see if and why that is the case and see how common the new cards are showing up in our deck list. It's going to be a whole bunch of fun. But before we get there, we are going to pause and give a huge thank you to the folks at the Command Zone podcast. Folks like Manson Lung, Ashlyn Rose, they do amazing job with the post-production work on our podcast here. So we thank you so, so much for all of that work, making the podcast look as spiffy as it does. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors for the show too. Yeah, the EDH Redcast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player. Lately, we've seen some uh, price creep on a whole lot of singles, and you can take advantage of that by buy listing cards you aren't playing to Card Kingdom for those increased prices. They have a huge inventory of singles as well to buy back with the money you get. And TCG Player also has a nearly limitless collection of singles. Anything you want, they have it in stock. Simply go to EDH Rec, click on the card in question, and choose the vendor link down below. Uh, doing so 
supports both the site and the show. Or if you would prefer to support the show directly, you can also do that over at patreon.com slash edhretcast. We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels, whether you want some swag, you want to check the Challenge the Stats spreadsheet and see what we're doing, how those picks were from a year ago. We have that all available over at patreon.com slash edhretcast. We even have a special tier where we shout out a specific patron every single week for just being a patron and just being great in general. So this week we are going to give a huge shout out to AJ Newhausen. So thank you so much, AJ. We definitely appreciate your support. AJ, thank you so much. You are awesome. We appreciate it so much. And you know what? Another thing that we should plug, we of course stream games on twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast every week, Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's a whole bunch of fun. We've got amazing guests on every week, including, you know, awesome people like Ashlyn Rose, who is so, so cool and destroys us with her Kozilex. It's really impressive and terrifying every time. Uh, and Rachel Weeks as well. We've had her on recently. Grim, the Asian Avenger. We've got a whole bunch of awesome guests coming on to play EDH. So if you're looking for some more EDH rec content, come visit us at twitch.tv slash EDH Recast. It's a whole bunch of fun. All right, fellas, let's get into our main topic. We're talking about power creep and the data behind it. Real quick, before we actually get to that data, of course, let's actually kind of take the temperature in the room, I guess, about power creep generally. You know, there's kind of the, the vibe in the air that power creep is always a thing. Do you guys personally feel that it has actually gotten more exaggerated in recent years? Is that just kind of a humdrum thing that you sort of heard? Or is that something you definitely believe personally yourself? Dana, where do you think you're at? Um, it's definitely a thing that's, I think, increased in recent years. But I think first we want to maybe take a step back and talk about kind of what power creep is. And true, there's a true. couple different ways to look at it. I, I think there's basically three different types of power creep as far as I can tell. Um, the first one just comes with the fact that like, the more you play commander, the more you're probably going to just tune your decks, the better you're going to get at realizing what cards are good in that deck. It's kind of like, like the movie Moneyball or the book Moneyball. The concepts were always there in baseball to build a better baseball team based on statistics. It just took a long time for everyone to understand how to apply them. That kind of works with commander decks too. It just takes you time to figure out how that deck works. And over a period of time, your deck just gets stronger by virtue of you tweak things here or there. So the, the format when everyone's doing that just gets stronger over time. Um, I think the second one is as new cards come out, you get ones that also fit your deck better. They don't necessarily have to get pushed. They might just do a thing that, that works very well with your deck. We talked about the, the recent Snowlands where there's some cards, if you're running snow, that work a little bit better. Joey has that Elegith deck that cares about Scry, right. and we got a card that lets you Scry um, if you have Snowlands and use that mana. So like Joey's deck got better by virtue of that card just existing. So again, power creep occurs when new cards are printed that just happen to fit your deck, even if they're not made stronger. I think the third one is what we're talking about here, though, where cards are intentionally made to be stronger, sometimes significantly so, than the ones that came before. I think that's the power creep we've really seen a lot lately, where we're getting new cards that just change the face of the game because they are so much more powerful than what we've had in the past. Cough, hole breacher, cough, 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 right. hole breacher, cough, <laughs> yeah. cough. Well, and Dana, just to, to build on a point of yours that, you know, you kind of hinted at a little bit, and we've actually talked about a few times in past episodes of efficiency creep too, and this might be something that, you, like you said in your third point, where cards are just 
blatantly better than what they were before. If they made a card that was rampant growth, but they made it one mana less, or, or they, like they did with Manalith and Arcane Signet, is effectively just a straight up one mana cheaper artifact that makes all the colors that you need like those are the types of efficiency upgrades where you know we talked about mana curves and how the average mana curve in a deck is going down and down well that's power creep that's just decks getting more efficient and getting more powerful as time goes and so we're going to kind of take a look and see can we put specific dates on when all this started to happen yeah and that's just it i mean it is kind of an always thing like if you go back into alpha and you find there's like a four mana three four with no abilities and then nowadays you're just like and here's questing beast which has ninety eight thousand abilities it's a four mana for <laughs> uh, a four mana four four with i want to say four hundred thousand words of text on it give or take something like that um like you're getting some complexity creep in there too even it's definitely there's some substantial stuff that's kind of always been happening in the game but specifically for commander matt I really think you're right. The past couple of years in particular have been um, a whole lot <laughs> to deal with. Like you've said in past episodes, I think you even kind of referred to it almost as commander rotation. Is that right? Yeah. The, the fact that there are so many just awesome, powerful new cards that you can't really play a bunch of cards that were printed in the, the dark ages of 2016. <laughs> like <laughs> right yeah that's just it it's just like oh man a new set has come out in 2017 or whatever i'm better make sure that i update my deck whenever i get a chance to finally get those cards and by the time that you do get those cards three other sets have come out with a bunch of cards too and now it's just like geez i might i might not actually end up playing any of these cards i got because some new cards from the most recent three sets have kind of outclassed the cards i was excited to put in well like that is that's how i a, don't understand how you and dana just keep up with it like you guys have new decks for the same commanders like every two years it seems like so <laughs> Rotation is a real thing. Like that's why you just don't up your date your decks like I do, and you'll you'll have a deck for however long you need. That's uh, that, that's pretty great. I will tell you, it's definitely a lot of work, but that's also what makes it so much fun. And that is definitely the thing. Like it is fun to try and keep up with, even if it does feel like stuff is rotating, but it also does kind of maybe get exhausting. But I don't want to just talk about our perceptions on it. Let's actually bring some data into this conversation. We're going to throw a graph on the screen because it is just really cool to see what's actually been going down uh, over the past years. What we've done is taken the average deck lists for each commander and broken down the original year that each card in those average decks was printed. So how many cards on average does a commander run a card that was printed in the year 1996 or in the year 2008 or that were originally printed in the year 2019 or 2020? All that stuff. And that's what we're seeing on the screen now. Folks, if you're just listening, definitely check out the YouTube video for this one because this graph shows us some really crazy stuff. Let's begin in 1993. There's an average of five cards on average there in the first year of Magic 1993. And from there, it kind of remains as an average of like one to two cards per year from like 1994 to 2004, just about one to two cards per average. Then around 2005, there's a slight minor escalation to like three cards that year, kind of. But in 2006, it jumps up. And that's where we see that there's actually about five cards on average that get played that were originally printed in 2006. But then it comes down to like, you know, two-ish on average for the next three years. 2010, it moves up a step. We go for an average of like two-ish cards to an average of maybe four-ish cards per year. And that stays that way for like eight years. It holds at a rough average of four cards per year from 2010 to 2018. And then 2019 happens. And what do we see in 2019? A spike, an average of 7.4 cards 
played in, from 2019. And maybe uh, maybe that's just a fluke, right? No, no, it's not just a one-off surge now. In 2020, it goes up more to 8.2. So we're talking about, you know, most years you'll see, you know, uh, the average deck contains maybe one or two cards from this year, maybe three cards, maybe four. But in 2019 and in 2020, we are seeing an average of 7.4 and 8.2 cards played. That is a way big spike compared to previous years. That is evidence of power creep in my eyes. Well, and, and you say it's a, it's a spike, and, and that is one way to put it, but we are literally doubling the amount of cards that the average deck is playing between 2018 and 2020. Like that, It is a spike, yes, but like it's double. So like right off the bat, these cards have had less time to curate. We always talk about, well, the set's not out, or the set hasn't been out for very long, so people haven't had a chance to put into decks yet. People already are doing that at huge, huge numbers for all these most recent sets. So anything that's basically been standard from Eldraine moving forward, that's just getting adopted at an insanely high rate and pushing other cards, older cards, out of the format. Yeah, like we heard it thrown around a lot that 2019 is where like, ooh, was just played around the power level, Throne of Eldraine, what is Sir Conrad doing with all of these different words on him? That's quite a whole lot of text, isn't it? This is really powerful. We think that Embercleave might be kind of weird for standard. What is this Oko card? But that applies to Commander too. Like 2019, we saw a huge, huge surge of power. Well, and also like, yes, the jump from like three or four to seven or eight looks like a big jump. It's technically probably kind of larger than that because there's people that don't change their decks. Mm. So for every person that has no cards from those years because they haven't made a change to their deck in a few years, that means there's someone who put 16 in to kind of even that out. So like the jump from, you know, if you double the three or four to, to six or eight versus the, the seven or eight to 14 or 16, um, like the average is of course an average number, but the outliers are huge to get that number up there when you also factor in, there's going to be quite a few people that just made no changes at all in those numbers. Dana, what I hear you describing is the dynamic that exists between Matt and between you about how he doesn't update right, his stuff. Right, kind of, yeah. I mean, basically, yeah. Yeah, I, I would average maybe like two or three cards per six months that I would change because I, I try to keep like the, the rough identity in there and then Dana rehauls it every other set. So it's <laughs> it's fine. But at the same time, like I in the past two years have been updating at a significantly higher rate just because the cards are so much more impressive. And, and like you said, and like we say on previous episodes, it really is like a rotation where you could basically have a brand new deck for any given commander using only 2019 and 2020 cards. Like you remember how we said that war of the spark might've been one of the most powerful sets for a commander. And then like two years later, we forget about it. Right. That's insane <laughs> yeah. to think about. Yeah. There is a whole lot happening. I mean, even just looking at the stuff coming from Kaldheim, like Matt, I think you said it most eloquently. That set is juiced. It's Oh, it's so juiced. Like it's like a little, prickly pear that you just want to pop open and just <laughs> man it's it, and like yeah. it, it is it like called time is just another another set in the trend of there are going to be insanely powerful cards there's going to be insanely powerful effects and it's just like you almost have no reason not to be at least strongly considering so many new cards with every set 
Yeah. And that's just it. The rate of adoption among recent sets is greater than it used to be for other you know, sets in the past. And that is something that we definitely want to be aware of to keep up with trends as they're occurring in magic. And it is kind of like, oh, man, it feels like I have to keep up in some of these cases, which is sort of the message to send to Watsy as part of this episode, too, is just like, Watsy, please, the power creep is starting to maybe stress us out a little bit as players. It's hard to keep up. Um, but it's also just useful for us as deck builders, too, to make sure that we know which areas are worth keeping up up with, so to say. Um, that was kind of a bit of a, a story that I sort of told just describing the graph too, but I actually want to pick through it a little bit more carefully and go through some of the stuff that's happening in these different years and go through some of the noteworthy ones. In fact, let's start back with that uh, that big surge, big start off point in 1993, where you saw that there's a, an average of five cards played in EDH decks that were originally printed in 1993. Five sounds like quite a lot. Like that's actually pretty impressive looking at that graph there, right? Um, but Dana, do you have a theory about why it might be so high starting off in the first year of Magic's existence? Um, you know, the the strongest card um, in Magic history happens to be in that set, which is Forest. Um, <laughs> You know, and when we got some weaker ones like planes too, but in between there, there's, you know, swamp, mountain, and island as well. So um, those tend to show up in quite a few decks, statistically speaking. A, a, a number of them, like an amount of decks, have been known to play a swamp or two. It, it does occasionally. It's been known to happen, I suppose. And obviously, you know, Soul Ring being the other really obvious one from that set in right. almost every commander deck ever printed. <laughs> I thought we were going to talk about the Lotus being in there, but that's that, that's the 2020 <laughs> Lotus. My bad. <laughs> right. Yeah, not that Lotus, not that Lotus. But yeah, that's just it. Like, technically, this graph is starting off with, you know, oh, five on average in 1993. That sounds really impressive. But no, we can't even count that as significant because it's probably like one card because there's too many basic lands. Basic lands are occupying that spot. So no, we actually can't even count it as a necessarily strong start off, although Soul Ring should definitely be noted for, you know, that year for sure. The next, I think, most significant uh, point that we see on this graph, though, is definitely uh, going to be 2000. 2006, where we again see a slight jump up to five cards on average that were originally printed in 2006. 2006 was the set uh, was the year where we had sets like Guild Pact, Dissension, and Time Spiral, and I feel like that definitely lends some information for us to use about why 2006 might have been significant year for Commander. I mean, in 2006, like you said, Guild Pact, Dissension, the original Ravnica block. I mean, that, that was when they really started to kind of focus in on exploring two-color identity decks and, and stuff like that. So we did have the Shocklands that showed up, the Signets from all the guild colors, kind of a, a growth upon the original Dual Lands from 1993. So just having those as kind of the, the next best thing, and, and they've been powerhouses in any format they've been a part of, minus Legacy, where you do have the duels. But then you also have like the signets, which are, are put in nearly every pre-constructed deck. They're a great card in pretty much any two plus color deck. Those alone like that, that takes up a good chunk of it because they're just very, very powerful cards. And if you're playing two or more colors, chances are you have at least a few cards that are just dealing with any of these multiple color, these dual color pairings. Yeah. And, and, and if you go through like the list of the top 100 most popular cards of all time, you do see quite a few entries from this year. You see things like Farseek, you see Mortify, you see Putrefy, you see Coiling Oracle. Mm -hmm. So in addition to the Signets and the Shocklands, 
the the first Ravnica block provided us with quite a few kind of quote unquote EDH staples that still see play to this day. Yeah, for sure. There is a slight bump happening in 2005, which I think accounts for um, the very first Ravnica City of Guild set yeah. because that one took place in 2005. So you get some like a little bit less than half of the Signets and Shocklands there. But then 2006 really rounds it up with the rest of them, not to mention those staples uh, that you just listed off there too, Dana, which also are, are definitely very significant. Another thing too that I want to point out there, though, like Time Spiral also kind of has its hand, I think, a bit in this because Time Spiral introduced the card Terramorphic Expanse, which probably seems a little bit silly, but that card shows up in 27% of decks that can run it. And again, that might not sound like a whole lot at first, but that means that it's showing up in 126,000 plus decks. Like that is also a really, really huge number for sure. I mean, that's been the backbone of, of pre-constructed decks along with Evolving Wilds, which we'll see here in a couple of years. Mm. But yeah, like some of these are just like building blocks for pre-constructed decks and then just those budget picks like if you're work you know you're building one of those 50 dollars decks like you did dana mm -hmm. if you're doing multiple colors like you probably considered terramorph expanse or just some of those yeah. original kind of staples that maybe you know lately have been kind of power crept out by better cards but back then you know when we were first exploring commander as a format terramorphic expanse was kind of like one of your premier color fixing lands yeah, those kind of things have definitely kind of gotten bumped out, but they still see a absolute ton of play, as Joey mentioned, 100,000 decks or so, mm -hmm. um, which, which is easy to forget when you look at th that card and think, well, it's, you know, we've had Prismatic Vista, Sunset, and Fable Passage. 100,000 decks is a lot of decks, and that still definitely <laughs> moves our numbers. Definitely. Uh, so after 2006, it really kind of dips once again looking at that graph, and it kind of climbs a little back up, not quite peaking, but eventually hitting what I would say is a new sort of average around the year 2010 or so. So I kind of want to go through what might have occurred around 2010, because that is really when we hit for a period of, I think it was about eight years where it's every year produces about four cards that show up in the average EDH deck. Um, in 2010, we had sets like World Wake, Rise of Eldrazi, uh, Scars of Mirrodin, and Matt, like you kind of alluded to earlier, Evolving Wilds, that was, you know, a World Wake card. And that's another one that shows up even more than the Terramorphic. Evolving Wilds shows up in 150 55,000 decks, 33% of decks that can play Evolving Wilds do play it. So that's definitely a huge thing that's uh, pumping up its numbers there for sure. But what other staples might we have seen in 2010 that kind of helped push it up from the like average of two from past years to an average of about four now? Well, I mean, there, there were just a bunch of kind of baseline power cards like Cultivate was originally printed in 2010. It wasn't Core Set M11, but that came out a year before because that makes sense mm -hmm. when you work for Watsi. Um, <laughs> But yeah, just cultivate just a bunch of those just base level cards that we kind of take for granted. Like, and they're always in the back of your mind as a card you should be playing just because they kind of reestablished kind of a, a new world order of power level. I know that 20, you know, 2010 or so when Rise of the Eldrazi was coming out, like those were some very, very powerful standard sets. And, and that's kind of what we're seeing here where it's bleeding over to Commander even in 2020 or 2021 now, I guess I should say. <laughs> well, and if you look, you know, we talked about the Shocklands being a big deal and of course, basic lands. But if you look at the, the, the dual lands that most people are running in their decks that make two or more colors, most of those are from that point forward. That's when you start getting mm. the check lands showing up. You start getting those filter lands that were in the Lorwyn set. And at that point on, we, we got probably a new set of dual lands every year 
most of which are relatively playable. So if people just, you know, put one of those in their two-color deck, that's one card out of every year. That's a land that's pretty good to play. In addition to how many really good utility lands have shown up in the last couple of years, or last, last 10 years at least. So I, I would wager that's a decent chunk of this too, as they've tried to make land bases better over the years. A lot of those have shown up in commander decks. Well, and, and one thing that's funny too, is you, you talk about the mana base and the, the rare land cycles that we're getting in 2010, we, we see an average of four cards per deck, but they're probably not the fetch lands. And that's kind of like the premier mm-hmm. like prestige card is the fetch lands where you can, you know, pay a life and find a an island or a mountain and put it into the play. We saw those in the original Zendikar block, kind of like we saw, you know, in, in the original, I think it was 2002 with Onslaught. None of those fetches are really bumping up those numbers. And even when you look back to 2002's numbers, even after they, you know, the the onslaught fetch lands were reprinted in Cons of Tarkir, that didn't really help the numbers all that much. Which means, like, yes, they are a luxury, nice thing to have. They are kind of, like I said, the premier land fixing. But that doesn't mean they're really getting played all that much. Yeah, that's that's huge. And in fact, a, a small correction on you there, Matt. Um, 2009, the original Zendikar, not 2010, is where oh, we saw okay. the continuation of them. And that's an even lower number than in 2010. That's true. And, that is true. And like you mentioned, yeah, 2002, again, the original printing is what we're basing all of this information off of, not off of Cons of Tarkir in a later year. But the original printing, 2002, still only showed an average of about two cards showing up in, in EDH decks from that year. And then 2009 is like, about three kind of and yeah it's so crazy that that didn't bump up the numbers nearly as significantly as some of the other entries um that we've mentioned have which is like you you sort of think of them as almost a format staple but they really are priced out of a lot of players hands and wizards yeah. we would love reprints to maybe help correct that issue who knows i don't well, know landfall decks might well, like at, it. at this rate though joey we may not need reprints because in 2022 we're going to get something that makes <laughs> fetch lands obsolete right. so yes th- no! th- then they'll give us the fetch lands that we want after they are you know, pointless. Oh, well, no. where, where the pricing thing I think is really um, visible is Urza's block is routinely considered one of the strongest sets of all time and contains just absolute bangers. You know, Sarah's Sanctum, Gaia's Cradle, Yogmas Wilt, just to name three. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's probably a dozen absolute EDH monster cards in that set. And it's barely a blip above the sets around it. Because of price, I would guess. Like so many of those cards are so expensive and and getting more so by the day basically right now if you watch the prices that the numbers get held down just naturally because of how expensive those cards are. Well, and Dana, there there are cards in those blocks that aren't thousands of dollars or hundreds of dollars that are still just great, great cards. You have stuff like Defense of the Heart. You have Pattern of Rebirth that are just forgotten because yes, they are extremely powerful, but they're also just pushed out, even though they're falling in under, you know, the the, the tier of cards that you mentioned, which are obviously in the nuts category, I believe it is. Is this like an early challenge to stats there, Matt? Is that is that something that you're doing right now? Trying to out both Defense of the Heart and Pattern of Rebirth have been challenged by you and I already. So <laughs> that's true. That's true. I should subscribe on our Patreon so that I can get access oh, to the nice. Challenge of Stats spreadsheet. Patreon.com slash EDH Recast. Sign up to Challenge of Stats tier. And pay more attention than Joey does. All right. I kind of want to move on now. Briefly, I want to touch on, because like, like we saw with 2010, that is where it sort of kind of comes to a new average of about four cards per year. And that maintains itself for like eight years of about an average of four. The only thing I really want to touch on there is that in 2011, 
That is when we saw the printing of Command Tower that year. So that definitely bumps up a number uh, for that year alone. Just a fun uh, blip that I wanted to point out there. But let's talk about that 2019. That jump from like an average of four to the sudden 7.4 cards on average that were printed in 2019 showing up in EDH decks. In that year, we had sets like Ravnica Allegiance. We had War of the Spark. We had Throne of Eldraine. We had Modern Horizons. We had the Commander 2019 product. We had Core Set 2020, which is labeled 2020, but came out in 2019 those sets are juiced i think i'll go back to your word there matt juiced oh let's say there, there's juiced and then there's juiced to the gills is a term that i heard <laughs> um and that's what 2019 was and it's just yeah you named all these sets but like when we think about the the specific individual cards you have some insane stuff like smothering tithe guardian project the talismans those came out in uh, modern horizons and those are extremely powerful like they when you look at the specific cards not just talking about the sets it becomes very real on just what kind of nutty and bogus cards we started to get so speaking of mana rocks like the talismans um arcane signet is in this window and is in <laughs> 130,000 decks <laughs> Um, you That's know, a few decks. Which, a makes, few. which makes Generous Gift only being in 30,000 look not as impressive, but that's still an <laughs> insane amount. Or Dockside Extortionist that on average makes about 40 treasures when it comes into play, also in 30,000 decks. <laughs> this set was so packed with stuff. There was so much going on in 2019. Like, uh, it's you, you look at these cards and you're like, well, yeah, of course. In fact, I, if, if I'm a listener right now, talk, seeing these guys look at the numbers to verify whether Prower Creep is just like, well, yeah, guys, of course. Have you gotten the message yet? We don't need your graph. Yes. Have you seen Arcane Signet? Have you heard of Sir Conrad the Grim? He's showing up in 19,000 decks. Of course, there's been Power Creep, guys. Aha. Well, and like we talked about, you know, pushing Terramorphic Expanse, Evolving Wilds out of the format. Here's where you see Fabled Passage, which almost is already in almost 40,000 decks. So, like, oof, that's quite a few numbers of decks just to be getting in in the past, what, year and a half or so since Throne of Eldraine has been released. But then also, like, we haven't even talked about a lot of these other great cards, like The Great Henge, which is in 17,000 decks, uh, Return of the Wild Speaker. Um, any green card really since Throne of Eldraine has come out probably <laughs> has worked its way in about 10,000 decks on average, I would say. Well, and these are just kind of the prestige cards we're talking about that yeah. like everyone that look really flashy. But how many of just kind of the role players are you guys running? Things like like I run Winged Words that draws you two cards if you have a flyer for two mana in multiple decks. It's nothing like super game breaking, but it's just more efficient than a bunch of other blue draw options. A village rights in black, where you sacrifice a creature for one black mana to draw two cards, is hyper efficient compared to the some more things that came before. It's not a prestige card, and it's not going to show up on this list, but it's in a ton of decks, and I run it in multiple decks. So there's just e even those little tiny things that like aren't flashy. The last couple years, there's a bunch of them. Yeah, Dana, I'm so glad that you brought that point up because that that's absolutely true. Power creep isn't just about the big stuff, although that is certainly the most prominent that we're able to point to, but it has to do with the fact that the floor is getting higher as well, yeah. not just the ceiling. So that's an absolutely great point. There's a ton that was happening in 2019, but there was also a ton happening in 2020 because it went from that, again, average of 7.4 on average showing there to 8.2 from 2020. So we had just a little bit more happening here, in fact. 
2020 brought with it sets like Theros Beyond Death, which is actually probably the least impactful of all of the stuff we're looking at, because then there were also Commander decks out the wazoo. There was Corset 2021, came out in 2020, but it is 2021 named. Uh, there was Ikoria, we had Zendikar Rising, we had Commander Legends, we even had Jumpstart, which maybe hasn't affected numbers too much because Jumpstart is not sadly as available as we want it to be, but there were a lot of sets going on here, and the cards that they had going on were all also absolutely insane. I feel like I have to mention Fierce Guardianship here because it shows up in 24% of decks that can play it, which is over 20,000 decks right now. Like there's a lot going on in 2020. It is so much to keep up with. Well, and a lot of these cards that we started getting in, in 2020, those are the cards that just seem to be that rule three that Dana introduced about power creep where these cards are so incredibly powerful. Like you, you have to find a spot for them, or at least you are strongly compelled to because you feel almost like you're missing out with stuff like fierce guardianship or even some of these cards that we saw in return to return to Zendikar um, with like Balagad recovery, for example, it's mm -hmm. a regrowth that also can double as a land when you need it. It's a bunch of cards like that that just kind of seem like, well, I, I really should be starting to play it or at least finding out where I can. And that's where I think a lot of the growth and a lot of just how pushed some of these cards felt upon us started to come in. For a lot of years, the conversation about best counterspell is mana drain and force of will. And Fierce Guardianship is in the conversation. Like they've printed one after a 20-year gap where those two were pretty obviously the, the most powerful counter spells out there. Um, you know, particularly if you're not like needing one mana counters. Fierce Guardianship is an amazing spell. Like they've printed that in the same set as Deflecting Swat, which would be in the conversation if it wasn't for how great Fierce Guardianship is. <laughs> Absolutely. And man, there's also still other stuff like we didn't even talk about Hole Breacher, although I feel like we have to talk about Hole Breacher because it's showing up in 29% of decks that can play it, which is a, a scary amount of decks. You've also got, Dana, going back to the point that you made about the lands from earlier, which is uh, around, you said, the 2010 mark or so, or it might have been a little bit later, where there was just like more consistent land availability um, to help increase mana bases. 2020, we saw three different land cycles that are very impactful, very important for commander players. The pathway lands, of course, which show up in like about 15 to 19% of decks that can play them. The battle bond land cycle was finally finished in Commander Legends, and those show up in about 32, uh, 29 to 32% of decks that can play them. And the triomes also got uh, printed here. And those show up in like about 40% of decks that can play them. Granted, there is a smaller pool of those because they have to be three colors or more. But like those are some really important statistics here just on the land base alone, also pushing up all of these numbers. The the, the snow lands that we're getting in Kaldheim that show up at common in the basic land slot are more powerful than a bunch of rare land cycles we got prior to 2010. <laughs> oh, no. oh, it hurts because you're it's not true. wrong though. Like <laughs> It's fun to joke about, but like you're not really wrong. And like yeah. I think that of all the power creep things that we we are going to talk about, like yes, there are some cards that it feels a little too pushed, stuff like Hole Breacher or whatever. I don't mind lands getting pushed like this. You know, sure. we we talk about the, the pathway lands, the, the battle bond cycle, the triomes, all of that. Those are great. They're great for mana fixing. And because there's so much coming out, like they're all relatively cheap compared to mana bases. When you talk about like the fetch shock mana base with scalding tarn and steam vents and those types of mana bases, you can fill out a, a very, very good and very functional mana base for very, very cheap, actually, probably for the price of a scalding tarn these days. 
So it, when every time that they give us a new rare lands slot in any of these standard legal sets, I don't mind because a lot of times they're going to end up being fairly affordable for the typical player. Yeah, I, I definitely like that. And a final point that I want to hit here too is that sort of throwing back to our previous episode, the legends also play a huge role in this as well. Because if the legends aren't good enough to go into your command zone, some of them are plenty good enough to go into your deck. You've got Akromas showing up in the 99. You've got Kedises showing up in the 99. You've got Kodamas filling into a whole bunch of different landfall decks, for example. There's a whole lot that's happening even on the legendary front to go into the 99 too that again pushes numbers like this up and up and up. So there is kind of a corollary going on there too. Another quick point that I do want to hit now that we've taken a look at all of these different years is that it is important for us to recognize that the data we're drawing from is, you know, EDHREC, we're only measuring data from decks that have been updated within the past two years. So there is a potential that that is skewing the way that we are able to actually appreciate this data and evaluate it. Like, would that change the numbers? And I definitely think that that is true, um, that if we were to draw from data from all time, that could shift the numbers around a little bit. But at the same time, Smothering Tithe is still showing up in 38% of decks that can run it, you know? And uh, it's like the power creep is still there, even if we have a slightly uh, finer uh, magnifying glass that we're using to make sure that we keep up with trends. This is the trend. But also, we we don't really care about how people are, are making decks back in 2013 because there, right. we have so much new information now. Like, And, and one thing that I, we see a lot in the, the comments that we do want to kind of address here too is just because a deck was made more than two years ago doesn't mean we're not seeing it. So whenever a deck is updated and the timestamp on whatever deck building site you choose to use, that that counts. So if I made a deck in 2015 and updated it last week, that would push it again into you know, the, the, the range of dates that we're going to be picking up from websites. Or say, if I didn't update it for a while and it fell off and then I re-updated it, it would still be good for a while too. So it would re-enter again. So just because a deck was created more than two years ago doesn't mean that we're not looking at it. It's it's the most recent timestamp because, like you said, we want to make sure that all the current or all the information is current. We are seeing the trends. We are seeing how people are building decks today. Like people don't want to know how people wrote code back in 1992. I know Dana does because that was you know when he was entering the That's workforce fair. again again. Um, but we want to see how people are building decks now and, and keeping up with everything because that's what we're seeing is helping other people build their decks because it is the most recent information. Yeah, and what we're, what we're seeing is a huge upswing. <laughs> now, one note I will, Joey talked about kind of a bit of a recency bias maybe even with some of these newer cards. I, I think where some of that stuff will maybe show up is down the road where you're looking at something like, say, Smothering Tithe, for example, being in you know 70 plus thousand decks. Um, a lot of those Smothering Tithes got put into decks when it was five dollars and then ten dollars and then you know fourteen dollars mm-hmm. today when it's a forty dollar card mm-hmm. there's probably way less smothering tithes being added to decks so now we might see some of that thing where we saw with like the urza saga era cards where the price now prevents them from going in decks so we'll probably see some leveling off of some of these cards um but they're not going to be taken out of decks they just their numbers may not go up at the rate they're going up right now because the price of some of these the great hinge you know field of the dead is relatively expensive these days um extortionist definitely is so so that is going to start kicking in because a lot of these cards were added to decks 
when the price was much more affordable, you know, a year or two ago compared to how it is today. Well, and, and if you look at the the most built commanders of all time too, like yes, you still have Golos, you still have Moldrotha, which somehow is only like two years old still, right? <laughs> but then you also still have Atraxel, which is still hanging very strong in the all time mm-hmm. list, and that card is certainly right. more than two years old. So maybe if you built an Atraxa deck back when it was originally released and never updated it, sure, then then your your list would probably fall off. But if you haven't updated it for a year even, that still is going to be around and still going to contribute to the numbers. So it's, it's yes, there's a little bit of a recency bias. It's, the information is not perfect by any means, but we are at least making sure that we're keeping up with, like we said, the trends and how people are, are adjusting to new information coming out. Mm-hmm. All right, fellas, that's been a whole lot of data to throw at people. So you know what I think we should do is take a break from that and throw even more at them in our segment, Challenge the Stats. What do you say? This is one of our favorite segments on the show. There's a whole bunch of data on track, but you know what? We just don't always agree with that. Sometimes we think that cards do too much play, sometimes too little play. So what we'd like to do is challenge those stats. Dana, do you want to start us off this week? What is your challenge? Sure. So, so I talked about the the non-prestige cards from the last few years that um just were power crept up and are really good in a lot of decks and i want to i want to use one of those for my challenge this week and that's light up the stage from the recent uh, return to return to ravnica block it is a uh, three mana sorcery two and a red but it has a spectacle cost so you may cast this card for a spectacle cost rather than the mana cost if an opponent lost life this turn. And it reads, exile the top two cards of your library until the end of your next turn, you may play those cards. So in a whole lot of decks, functionally, it is a one mana draw two. Hopefully you'll get your land drop off and have one more card you can play. Uh, For one single mana, um, that's a really high floor. And worst case scenario, you're spending three mana for two cards which is Divination, which is still in almost 3,000 decks, same amount of decks as Light Up the Stage, um, which has a much higher upside. I think it should be in more than the 3,200 decks. I know it gets kind of um, outshone by how many great red spells we've got in the last few years, but it's not just a good red spell. I think even if you are playing in the more traditional draw colors and you're playing red, the efficiency on it is so good it's still worth running, even if you're in, you know, Gruel or even if you're in Is It. One mana to draw two is fantastic, and it should see more play. Man, Dana, I love that. I'm remembering in a past episode, we asked what your player archetype was, and you were like the tax accountant because I love these little <laughs> incremental value pieces like this. That I love what it's a stage. It is a, a favorite <laughs> card of mine from the last few years, and that's exactly why. Awesome stuff, Matt. How about your challenge? So Dana talked about a card that wasn't as prestigious and in need some light. <laughs> uh, I'm going to talk about a card that's never been prestigious because it's coming back from Kamigawa Block. So uh, this week's challenge that I have is actually from a listener. So Marcus Talram, thank you for your submission. Um, but Marcus submitted Mark of Sakiko as a card that we should all keep an eye on now. Everybody knows this powerhouse. Um, but Marcus Sakiko is one in a green for an enchant creature, an aura spell. Uh, and it says enchanted creature has, whenever this creature deals combat damage to a player, add that much green mana to your mana pool. This mana doesn't cause mana burn. Until end of turn, this mana doesn't empty from your mana pool as phases end. So Marcus talks about this card being great in Halden and Paco decks because Paco has the ability to to get fairly sizable. And I like that pick, but I like this a lot more in just any kind of big green beater decks that's going to have any sort of trample or evasion. Um, 
Omnath Locus of Mana seems like a commander that is well equipped to benefit from Mark of Sakiko and is currently not really playing this at all. So it's currently in 38 Omnath Locus of Mana decks. Um, Omnath Locus of Mana effectively doubles in size because Omnath gets plus one, plus one for every unspent green mana in your mana pool. Well, Mark of Sakiko can basically double that because you hit them for five and then Omnath gets an extra five to power and toughness. So it is a very, very powerful card, currently only being played in 327 decks total. Um, Marcus, I really like this pick. It's a nice way to generate mana and just crank through some cards if you need, or if you're playing some of those bigger creatures, you just wanna just soup them up like Omnath. Here's your card to do that. So great pick, great find, Marcus. This is a good one. Love that. That is really, really cool. I'm going to move to my challenge now, and I'm being pretty uncharacteristic because I'm talking about a Jeskai commander. I know, it's weird. I wish that I was talking about Golgari, but there's a card that I want to critique here in a Jeskai deck. That's Gabby Nest Warden, the cycling commander in Jeskai. The card Eternal Dragon shows up on Gabby's page at a rate of 45%, and I feel like this is some really strong precon effect hold over here because I don't think that this card is really what Gabby necessarily wants. Eternal Dragon is a 7 mana 5-5 that has plane cycling for 2 mana so you can discard it and then go find a planes card from your deck and that can technically be useful to help you go find a card that is both a planes and an island for example but I don't know that that's necessarily what you're actually after in this cycling deck because cycling as a archetype really cares about your draw triggers as part of the reward. You can activate a Niv-Mizzet effect for example by cycling through so many things so easily and and especially by just being able to trigger Gabby's own ability. So some cards that I would prefer to see at a higher clip instead of the Eternal Dragon would be something maybe like Angel Song, which is a fog with cycling. That only shows up in like 20% of Gabby decks. Or Akroma's Blessing is a personal favorite of mine, which is a protection spell, but it only shows up in about 12%. Cycling decks, they the cycling cards, they really allow you just an amazing flexibility for those situational spells to surprise your opponents. Or if you don't need them, you can just flip them away. So the situational spells are not actually going to be a mark against you. You're never going to feel like they're actually a dead draw because you can just toss them and draw something else. And I feel like that that's going to be a whole lot better than a 5-5 that cycles for lands instead of letting you draw and trigger your commander and your other support pieces in the deck. So that is my challenge. And I'm done talking about Jeskai now because I feel like I need to get back to my Golgari roots. Go take your shower. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's get back on to our topic. We took a look at all of the different years and the average number of cards that show up in commander decks based on each of those years. But that's a fun way to round out the show really quick. I kind of wanted to also take us through a, a, a kind of fun exercise. Um, I'm just calling it like something old, something new. I just want to finish off with some fun, quick questions. Now that we've seen, uh, you know, the, the decks that play how many cards per year, I was kind of curious which commander uses the fewest new cards or the fewest old cards or the most old cards or the most new cards. So I thought that that would be a fun way for us to round out the show. Dana, do you want to take us through the first one here? Which commander uses the fewest new cards from most recent years on average? The uh, the fewest new card award goes to uh, Muzio, Visionary Architect, who clearly is vision is set on the past. Um, <laughs> Muzio is a three mana human artificer and you can spend a three and a blue to look at the top X cards of your library, where X is the highest converted mana cost among artifacts you control, and you can reveal an artifact from among them and put it onto the battlefield. So it's basically a way to cheat artifacts into play based on the large artifacts you already have out. And it, it's running one card from 2020, um, five from 2019 on average, but its heyday is back in 2010 and 2011. It's running a nine cards from 2010 and 10 cards from 2011. 
Dang. There's probably a logical reason for that. Does anyone have a guess? I mean, that's back in like the Mirrodin besieged sort of block, I would say. So he's probably enjoying more of those old school artifacts and kind of letting the new commanders like Emery and Urza hold on to all of the new fangled shiny things that have come in the future sets. And Muzio seems to probably prefer those older artifact sets. Muzio came out in the original conspiracy. So there was, mm-hmm. th- that wasn't, well, I guess now that we're thinking about it, it was a decently long time ago. Um, but it was definitely after after the Mirrodin besieged era. Yeah. Well, and I think Emery and Urza both want the really efficient stuff, which tends to be a little bit more recent. Versus Muzio, if you're cheating things into play, you're looking to cheat big, expensive things into play, and that's probably the little the, the more or less efficient stuff from a few years back. I mean, you are, you are probably looking at Mirrodin besieged classics like Blightsteel Colossus, for example. You bet. <laughs> Indeed, and that is pretty crazy. It's impressive to see a commander that only runs one card that was printed in 2020 on average. Kudos to you, Muzio. Kudos indeed. Let's move on to uh, Matt. Which commander uses the fewest old cards from way back in the Dana days? So back from the Dana days, back when Richard Garfield first intended for magic to be however it was intended to be, um, (laughs) we have Sasaya Orochi Ascendant. So that is the mono green commander from Kamigawa block where uh, it's a 2-3, but then you can reveal your hand. And if you have seven or more lands in your hand, you can flip Sasaya over. And it's not a dual face card. It's just you rotate it 180 degrees into Sasaya's Essence, where it reads, whenever a land you control is tapped for mana, add one mana of that type for in, to your mana pool for each other land you control with the same name. So it's only playing one card between 1993 and 1997, but it's going to be the the basic forest because <laughs> when you're mono green that's all you need um but it didn't really use anything else for quite some time and then it probably just took off from there but half the deck i mean in order to trigger society you have to have seven lands in your hand um, so it's playing quite a few basic lands basic force in there um, 45 on average I absolutely love that this card is seeing it's using one card that was printed in the first year of magic and that is forest. And after that, for like four years or whatever, it's just like, nah, I'm not using anything from you years. I don't need you. I don't need your old cards at all. That's really awesome. All right. Moving from that, then let's talk about the commander that uses the most old cards. So there's Dana, of course, because this challenge, the stats are typically like really obscure things from sets that I don't even remember the names of. Um, But when take a look at the commander that uses the most, the greatest number of older cards in its deck, the winner here is Angus McKenzie, the Bant Fog commander, who, speaking of price, is a bit more than I can stomach looking at sometimes. Uh, Angus McKenzie uses 11 cards on average that were originally printed in 1993. We should, of course, you know, discount probably three of those uh, for the being the basic lands that would show up in the deck. So maybe around eight to be more accurate. Um, but it also uses four cards that showed up in 1994. So it is definitely hated, uh, weighted much more towards the back end there for Angus McKenzie, Mr. Fogman. See, see, people may be updating the decks, but they're not updating the cards. They're just like changing the basic art from alpha to beta. <laughs> well, and also like as I believe this is the most expensive actual commander that you can play in the format, probably makes you if if you're willing to buy the most pricey commander, probably makes you much more likely to buy those old Urza's, you know, black cards people for the most part aren't able to put in their decks. Um this is just kind of the uh the the bling commander and people yep. are probably more willing to run those big um pricey bling cards from back in the day. 
I was absolutely going to say the same thing, Dana. This doesn't feel like a deck that plays the most old card so much as the deck that flexes on its opponents yes. just by sitting down at the I table. I would guess that's very true. <laughs> absolutely. All right, let's round it out then. Let's talk real quickly. Wit is the commander that uses the most new cards on average. Dana, what is the answer? Which commander is using the greatest number of cards from the most recent sets? Yeah, the, the commander that uses the most new cards is Gigantha the Wellspring, one of the companions. Um, four and a hybrid gruel. Um, no card in your starting deck uh, has more than one of the same mana semblance mana cost, but that's if it's a companion. If it's not, it's just a com commander that can tap for Wooburg, so one of each color, and this mana can't be spent to pay generic mana cost. So it's the best mana dork ever printed, basically. Ain't bad. Ain't bad. What's the number? Uh, what, what's, it, what's it looking like there? How many new cards is it playing? Um, you know, only four from 2019. Okay. Oh, but bad. 49 from 2020. That is bad. My That's face right now. Insane. Oh my, that is really crazy. But I think we probably might have a hint to why, right? If you want to play a five-color mutate, this is a pretty good five-color mutate commander, and all the mutate cards in the world came out in 2020. Exactly. Yeah, when we look on uh, Gigantha's EDHREC page, we are seeing a bunch of mutate stuff. I think Jeremy Noel of Commander Versus uh, would be probably really pleased to hear about this, in fact, because he has a Gigantha mutate deck, too. And that just tends to be a, a thing that we're seeing consolidated here is a bunch of mutate stuff. And yeah, you're not going to find mutate cards from back in 1993. It's just uh, not, not a mechanic that happened necessarily around that time. <laughs> And I would imagine, Joey, that's something we would see if we went back through certain commanders. Um, you know, Animar gets gets played quite heavily with morphs, for example. Mm -hmm. So I would guess um, until we got morphs in in Khan's block, a lot of those Animar decks were running a bunch of really old cards as well, just to because morphs hadn't been printed in so long. So I, I would guess you see a lot of that where a commander that's built around a very specific mechanic has some years with really big spikes. And it just so happens in this case that the, the Gigantha spike is in 2020, but that's probably something you see with a bunch of these commanders that care about that kind of mechanic that you only see in a certain block or set. Yeah, excellent point. They'll have a spike in a certain year, but probably a drought in any others for sure. Well, this has been really, really fascinating. I, like I said, was really excited for this topic because it is just a cool thing to see that, yeah, it's not just a sense in the air about power creep. There's definitely a lot more affecting our commander decks in more recent years. It is kind of a trend that is escalating slowly upward. I do believe that this is kind of a a new normal that we probably have to get used to as uh, commander players being more visibly pushed this way. But it is a note too, I think, that not every single year can look exactly like the graph that we've presented in this episode. Not every year can have eight cards that show up in decks on average. New numbers would push old numbers down. By taking up more room, the other numbers would have to squeeze down to compensate. So if 2021 gives us like eight more cards on average and 2022 gives us like nine cards or whatever, then in Inevitably, the other years are going to shrink down a little bit from an average of like two to one or from four to two or four to three or something like that to make up for it. So that is definitely something that we probably need to keep in mind. This might actually be a trend that we're just kind of catching up with and that some of those other numbers have already been depressed quite a bit. But this trend continuing, we're going to see this graph, I think, for for some years to come is maybe what I'm sort of hinting at. I think that that is a good point that it, there's probably a cap on this as well. And, and one thing we didn't mention here that probably is also a bit of a factor 
we've got more sets and, and, and more, you know, additional mm-hmm. commander decks with, with every expansion the last the last year or two or brawl decks or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's, there's a hard cap on how much product that can come out that can provide opportunities for these cards to show up in decks as well. Um, and and I, I would guess we're probably kind of at that. I, I probably shouldn't tempt the fates, but um, there, there's definitely a limit to, in addition to how many powerful cards you can run, how many opportunities they can present over the course of a year as well. So I, I think I agree. This is maybe the new normal, but there's definitely a limit to, to where that trend can go upwards. I mean, I, I also don't want to live in a world where the Great Henge has been power crept out of the format. Right. Like, that just seems <laughs> exactly. like a dangerous proposition where maybe the game may not be getting into a great place. Um, I, I do agree that, yeah, there, there's just so much going on. And, you know, 2020 was the year of Commander, which we definitely appreciate. I just mm-hmm. hope 2020 wasn't the year of Commander and the 2020s are the decade of Commander. Um, <laughs> right. I, that that might be where we kind of start to, to slip a little bit. But being able to just put a finger in, like, it, it's always weird saying, well, it feels like power creep, but there's no way to quantify it. But it is nice to have it, you know, gone through this data on this episode to actually be able to, you know, say, yes, there are, you know, cards are getting adopted faster. Cards are pushing out these other numbers. Um, so being able to actually like put facts and information to the power creep feeling that a lot of people have had, I'm sure is kind of reassuring for a lot of folks out there. Yeah. And and honestly, like this was a whole lot of fun just kind of as an exercise too. Listeners, we would love to know what you think about the power creep in the format and in the numbers that are here. But also it might be a fun exercise to go through one of your own decks and see, you know, how many cards am I running on average that were printed in this year or this year or this year and sort of measure it in your own deck building as well. It might be a lot of fun. Anyway, fellas, I think what we ought to do is call this episode to a close. So if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where is it that they can find you all? Matt? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S-5-5. And don't forget, like Joey said, Wednesday evenings, we are streaming over at twitch.tv slash EDH RecCast. Our guests are pretty dang great. The games are usually pretty dang great, unless Joey kills me first. So make sure you tune in twitch.tv slash EDH RecCast. I only do that when you deserve it, Matt, which is admittedly frequently. Yeah, it is frequently. Yes, yeah. All right. Anyway, Dana, how about you? You can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach. You can find me on my other podcast once a week, CMDR Central. And you can find all of us at patreon.com slash EDHRecCast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And you can find the cast at EDHRecCast on both Twitter and on Facebook. Plus, if you have a question, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the whole team at the Command Zone Podcast for handling the post-production work on our podcast here. And, of course, our thanks go to our sponsors for the show. They are TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. You can find them using the price info links on EDHREC or by visiting CardKingdom.com slash EDHREC to show your support for the show. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community and of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. 
our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>